Today's episode of the Strength Talk podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, is brought to you by the Arc from Verve. If you want to improve your posture, the Arc has you covered. Developed by a physical therapist, designed by an engineer, made in the USA, the Arc is going to improve your posture and relieve that neck and back pain once and for all. What is up, guys? Welcome to the brand new Strength Doc podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, with me, Dr. John Russin. I want to get one thing clear. This is not going to be your average fitness podcast, and I'm sure as hell not your run-of-the-mill strength coach. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin here, bringing you guys the latest episode of the Strength Doc Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, with my guest, Dr. Jonathan Mike. Now, don't let those PhD letters behind Jonathan's name fool you guys. Along with being an academic, he is a serious lifter, writer, and speaker who's been all around the world talking about exercise science, biomechanics, and lifting heavy shit. I talk about this all the time, but Jonathan's one of those guys that walks the walk in an industry and really brings together the hybrid of academics and real-world training to create something truly special in this industry. So let's get to this episode right away with my guest, Dr. Jonathan Mike. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin here, back with a brand new episode of Strength Doc Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jonathan Mike. What's going on, man? How's it going? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've been dying to get you on the podcast since uh, we were together for a weekend up in San Francisco last month. Uh, we definitely hit it off, had a good training session, definitely had some good meals, ate some Chipotle between uh, presentations <laughs> there, and uh, I'm glad that we got this on the books, man. Yeah, absolutely. I always really enjoy doing podcasts, and uh, especially when they're you know higher quality you know podcasts. And most podcasts these days are really high quality, and and just to you know educate people and get really good quality information out there. Yeah, absolutely. And people that don't know a little bit about you, you're definitely one of those guys that's bridging science with just hardcore training, the kind of guys that I like to associate with. <laughs> so right. really, uh, you're, you're right now at Linwood University? Yeah, I'm at uh, Lindenwood University. Um, it's a Division II school. I'm assistant professor of exercise science. I just started there this semester, and I finished up my uh, PhD in exercise science at University of New Mexico in Albuquerque uh, this last May. And it was you know, obviously by far the hardest thing I've ever had to do is, is to get a, um, a doctorate, but uh, it's really uh, it really changes your world. And of course, when you're done, it puts things in different perspectives. And you know, it's one of those things that certain things in life are just meant to be hard. And you know, if it were hard, then everybody would be doing it. And so, um, I, I, I love the industry. I'm very passionate about it. I do. I'm very involved with NSCA. Um, I'm a columnist and team member for EliteFTS.com. I've written for numerous fitness and bodybuilding magazines and consumer outlets. Um, I do a lot of speaking throughout the year. And I've also competed in Strongman uh, numerous times. And I'm, I'm looking forward to doing a contest sometime this next spring or, or early summer. Um, but throughout that time and throughout you know my busy you know schedule, I'm always training hard. You know, I usually train four days a week, but for, for now, this past uh, semester, it's been three just because of the stress of the travel and, and, and the teaching load and, and all the work um, that comes with that. But uh, yeah, still getting in the gym pretty hard and you know, always seeking to, to get stronger and always you know, imp improve. 
Yeah, man. And I definitely feel like you're going to have an Atlas stone off your shoulders after getting that PhD done. Because I know that, like you said, man, it was so hard getting through that. But now you have it. You have a little bit more free time for the teaching thing to go out and speak. You're killing it on the speaking circuit, but also uh, writing in articles and uh, definitely the lead columnist over on Elite FTS. How long you been? How long you been over at Elite FTS for? Um, I've been with Elite FTS for just over three years. And okay. So I've written uh, just over thirty articles in that in that time. Um, so usually about one one a month. Um, the last this past year, um, I didn't write as many articles um, just because of moving and traveling and finishing up things, and then my new transition into my new job. But um, I've caught, um, I think since August or September, I've had three articles come out and I actually, it, when I, when I first started with elite, um, the term that they called, at least my column was actually called the research meathead column. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was really cool. So, um, and I think now it's just, just a research column, but I've also done several articles, non-column articles as well because I just like being diverse um, in certain in certain things and I've also written two articles uh, this past summer on my journey and my experience through my doctorate and I'm currently working on a part three um, series to that which should be the last and um, so I just recently started that but uh, hopefully to finish soon but you know and the reason I wrote that is because you know a lot of times with higher education and it doesn't necessarily have to be with Higher education, it could be with anything, or you know, business, or um, you know, online things of that nature. But you know, sometimes in life, people think that they're the only ones that go through anything, you know, specifically, or the only ones going through hard times. And I, I really did it because it was it was my way of, uh, you know, just reflecting back on my experiences, but also uh, to give a little bit of um, perspective and future uh, enlightenment on those that may wish to pursue those higher levels of education and just to tell them that, you know, it is hard, but you know, they're not the only ones going through it. I actually got some really good feedback on it from a lot of people uh, through, you know, Twitter and through email and Facebook. So, um, I'm, you know, it was, uh, I'm glad that I can, um, impact those, you know, that, that feel that they may be going through something. That was, uh, my take home, point from all the conversations that we had last month is I remember driving around and we talked about, you know, having this persona of, you know, Dr. Jonathan Mike having a byline on one of the best sites in the world for strength and conditioning and people thinking like, oh man, you made it, dude, you made it. And it's all just like, everything's up in the clouds, everything's perfect, utopia up there. But really there's a progression to get where you are today. You know, I've gone through that exact same thing. And I think that uh, that three-part series that really speaks to that, you know, no matter if you're a strength athlete, if you're a physio, if you're an academic like yourself, you know, there's lulls and then there's highs. And there's, you know, in our field, everyone likes to look at this guy up on the pedestal. But really everyone's pretty normal and everyone goes through ups and downs and i'm yeah. glad that you wrote those things man yeah and that, that's really why 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 i did it and you know there were to be honest um at least the second part of that series was it was just hard to write you know because i had to go back and really think about you know feelings and just go back and reflect and you know there was there were things that i could not say in those in those two part series um, there's things that I wanted to say that I just couldn't, and there were things that that occurred that if I had talked about it, it would have been like a ten part uh, article <laughs> series. But uh, you know, it was 
I, th- I thought it was good. And, uh, you know, like I said, I got some really good, you know, feedback on it. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, and it doesn't matter if you're a strength coach because most of my background was strength conditioning anyway. But regardless if you're a strength coach or a personal trainer or you're in business or even if you're an actor in Hollywood, you know, one of the things that, that – people usually flock to or is is what we've talked about before is all the successes everybody always sees the successes but no one really sees or even really gets to hear um you know the low points and all the you know the down things that you've had to go through so you know everybody goes through ups and downs and um you know it's it's just one of those things to where you know it 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 makes you you know, mentally tough and physically tough. And, you know, it's just one of those things of how bad do you want it? I mean, you have to have passion in this industry. Um, you know, people think, oh, well, well, you made it. And, and my, my, uh, one of my mantras is, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of work, you know, to, to get to the top and meaning like what you have to do to get to the top is really only part of what you have to do to really stay and continue on top. Oh, absolutely. Now, if you were to break it down and you were to say the one turning point on you deciding to finish up that PhD and really move on with your education, what would it be? It would be when um, I – in late 2011 when I passed my comprehensive exams, I moved back to Louisville, Kentucky because I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky. And my thought process was at the time was to you know go back because I was off scholarship at UNM is to go back to Louisville – you know, apply for some positions part time or even full time, and I even applied for some strength coach jobs just to try and get something. And several months went by. You know, I met with a lot of people um, at various gyms, and even people that had nothing to do with the industry itself. And people, I mean, I met with people that were you know in business or even in the insurance business that had nothing to do with the industry at all, just to try to establish and create some additional contacts. And you know, several months went by, and I never, I didn't get any interviews, I never got any calls. And I ended up, um, you know, substitute teaching for a year just to get extra income. I mean, it's, you know, people don't really want to hear that or think, well, gosh, that's what you did. And, you know, sometimes in life, you just have to do what you have to do uh, just to, you know, make somewhat of an income, you know, for yourself. And and typically at that point, um, I was also working in semi-private training, um, working at a business that um, two of my college um, friends still have, and they recently expanded. And, you know, during that time, it was really one of the more, um, uh, positive experiences, you know, throughout, you know, that year. It's such a great experience working in semi-private training, worked with a lot of male and, of course, female clients, you know, coached a lot of metabolic classes, learned some good stuff about business and, you know, continue to learn some things about, you know, just, I mean, I've always been really good at programming, but just, but just from a different perspective, you know, it's different when you program for, you know, athletes and strength athletes versus like the general population and just different progressions and ways of doing things. And during that point, Nothing was really happening for me on um, the the academic front, and that's when I decided, you know, to go back to UNM uh, and, and and finish because I knew if I didn't finish, um, it just wouldn't be, it would not work out, you know, long term. So, um, you know, two and a half years later, um, I finished, and of course, you know, there's a lot of stuff that went on during that time. We had some delays, and um, but uh, it was, you know, looking back, it's it's one, of the, it's really my my I feel my greatest accomplishment. It's something I always be proud of. 
that's an accomplishment that what is it like 0.001% of people in America yeah, are walking just, around with a yeah, PhD. Like, or, yeah, <laughs> like, or the, like the world for, for example. I mean like less than 1% of the people, world's population has a doctorate. And it's funny you say that because it's the, almost the exact opposite of those that have an undergraduate degree. It's, I don't know what the percentage, maybe it's like 80 or 90%. And, and then a master's is, you know, you know, maybe 25%. I don't really know. And then just, I mean, just the blink of a dot are those that have, you know, a doctorate. So, um, you know, and, and, and people have asked me, like, why I got a, a doctorate. And, you know, to be honest, it really just comes down to just opportunity. You know, um, you just have more opportunities and more doors open. And, and But at the same time, I have a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues who do not have doctorates. And they're great professionals. Um, they're very well known. They do great work. So, you know, you just don't, you don't just need a doctor just to get more opportunity. You know, you can have a master's as well, um, but it just depends on kind of what avenue that you want to go into. And, you know, nowadays, really in the last 10 years or so, 12 years, a, a master's, a graduate degree is really a new undergrad degree. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can get by on an undergrad, but you're not going to make it very far. I mean, everybody in the world has a master's. I mean, you essentially need a master's just to work at Target. Um, or, or work at a cubicle or work at an office. Um, so, you know, it just depends on how far that you really want to go with it um, and, and what types of opportunities that you see yourself really doing. And um, I'm, I'm very, I feel blessed. I feel fortunate to be doing the things that, that uh, you know, they really want to do. Yeah. And when I think about a PhD, I think about digging an inch wide and a mile deep. And there aren't yeah. too many people in the world that are willing to do that. And then willing to do it for, you know, four or five years, you know, full time, that's all you're doing. And, you know, getting into that, I think the strong strength coaches out there, the strong physios out there that really have a mind for what they're doing, you know, above and beyond the industry standard, they're asking the right questions in clinical practice. They're asking the right questions in the gym. And I think when you have the right questions to ask, it makes higher end education like a PhD so much more fulfilling when you actually get to your dissertation because it's a question of an answer or it's an answer to the question that you've really wanted for sometimes 10, 20 years. And I think mm -hmm. those are the most notable studies. Uh, I want you to dig in a little bit into your dissertation because uh, I know it's something that I fully believe in, but I, I want to hear it from you. <laughs> sure. Well, my dissertation was uh, actually the title of my dissertation was the effects of eccentric contraction duration on uh, max strength, um, power, rate of force production, and vertical jump. So um, I, w I was always, I've always really enjoyed eccentric training, and I remember coming out of my comps, you know, my advisor, he was like, John, you know, take a look at this article. I think this would be like a really good, you know, dissertation topic for you. And at first, you know, you're always just kind of reluctant because I think, and, and I'm sure you can understand uh, as well as other people, and you don't have to have just a doctorate, but you can do a master's thesis. And sometimes you're just kind of reluctant to, um, you know, those types of things because you're you're kind of searching for what's, I got to have that perfect thing to do. I got to have the thing to do that nobody else is ever going to do or, you know, as no one ever has, you know, visualized before. So at that particular time, I was a little reluctant. I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. And as time went on, as I, as I dug more into the topic, you, you start to, it starts to take on a life of its own and you kind of start to become the topic. You start to become 
you know, your, your, your study or your dissertation. And it, and it is life consuming, uh, until you're finished. So, uh, that was my dissertation. And we essentially, you know, our question that we, my, that I answered was, you know, which specific eccentric, um, contraction duration or, or varying the eccentric contraction duration, which one has a more or less of effect on max strength, you know, power production, um, uh, vertical jump and soreness. So we had three groups of subjects um, and we had three conditions, a two second eccentric group. So um, if let me kind of preface by saying the overwhelming majority of science out there on eccentric and concentric training is comparing one or the other, concentric versus eccentric, or say slower concentric and slower eccentric. Well, up until my study, and I'm actually the very first person or the first group to actually do this, to just really compare varying the degrees of eccentric um, only. So for example, we had three groups we had a control group, which was a two-second eccentric, which is usually a normal um, tempo or cadence in most lifting, uh, you know, exercise, you know, tempos and situations. Then we had a four-second um, eccentric and a six-second eccentric. So we had three groups. Both groups um, squatted twice a week for four weeks um, at 80 to 85 percent of their one RM. So we did a pre-testing of squat jumps. At three sets of five with 45% of their 1RM and vertical jump um, pre and a pre 1RM. Um, and then they would train twice a week for four weeks. And there we uh, did that pre, those pre testing. And then midpoint, we actually did a mid 1RM. And then um, post training, we actually did all the measures again. So it was really a repeated measures uh, trial. So pre and post. And what we found was. Um, the all the groups two four and six second on the eccentric and keep in mind the concentric was the same I mean, it was the same um, tempo or, or you know contraction duration for all groups and what we found over the course of just a short period of time of four weeks that all groups increased their one RM between eight and thirteen percent um, and vertical jump um, increased in the two second and the four second group but decreased in the six second group. Um, power output increased um, in all groups. Peak velocity increased in the two-second and four-second, but it actually decreased in the six-second group. So just to kind of break that down for uh, our audience in terms of you know practical application, a longer eccentric duration um, would would decrease overall power output, peak velocity, um, and and vertical jump performance. But the two-second, the four-second are still um, optimal, um, and it depends. I mean, maybe you're someone. Who can do like a five second, um, or maybe sometimes maybe a six second. But um, you know, just from the work that we did, a six second eccentric um, duration in a, in a squat um, decreased vertical jump performance and um, peak velocity overall. But the two and the four second um, actually increased as well as one RM for all groups, um, even though um, there was actually no interaction effect between the 1RMs for all groups. And what that means is it means that, you know, the two-second versus the four-second versus the six-second, like no group was better than the other, but all groups actually increased. Um, and we or we just submitted it for publication. Um, so uh, I look forward to, to seeing that in print sometime soon. Yeah, I can't wait to read that in print as well. And, and my question is that, you know, before you got in and started studying the eccentrics, uh, how were you utilizing it as a strength coach, but also a pretty elite strength athlete yourself? 
Uh, here and there, um, and I actually started doing it more when um, I got more into um, my dissertation topic. Um, but I would always incorporate it, and it's one of those things to where I know we've kind of talked about this. It's one of those um, higher intensity. I would definitely categorize it in like a higher intensity intensity type of training method. But most people, when you think of eccentrics, and this is just most people. Um, when you when you talk about eccentrics, the, the the first two things that they always think of is bench press and bicep curls. <laughs> and most people don't, you know. I'll always like to, you know, teach and coach people to think outside the box and think of, you know, how else that eccentrics can be incorporated and implemented into a program or even to your own training. And you can do it with pull ups. I mean, you can do it, you know, if you have if you do pull ups and use a band, you know, you can do it that way. I mean, I've actually done uh, three fifteen RDLs. Romanian deadlifts with a six-second eccentric for sets of eight reps, and that that that's very brutal. You're um, speaking to me but, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Um, and you can do it with dumbbells as well. But but most most eccentric techniques that people think of are either stuff with bicep curls or bench press or uh, super max. Um, training techniques like super maximal intensity, like um, over 100% 1RM, 105% 1RM, 110% 1RM. But you know, from experience and looking at it from from the research perspective, most of the performance increases and gains that you get and obtain from eccentric training is really on a submax level. Um, and not to say that you cannot do it on a super maximal um, level, but and there's there's advantages and disadvantages of of, of various eccentric training uh, you know techniques. Uh, you know there's like the two one technique and there's like a you know super slow, but um, you know super slow is really more like a ten second, twelve second you know eccentric or even a concentric. And you know typically when you get into the really super slow stuff, and there's a couple of you know. Um, Older research articles that that talk about some benefits of it, but overall, you're not going to get the performance um, increases. Overall, the transfer transferability um, to to higher workloads and the performance if you d- keep doing too much super super slow types of training. Um, anything when I mean super slow, and I'm and I'm going based off the research that I've done. Really, I don't think there's any purpose, really big need to go over six seconds on the eccentric. Uh, for for most people or most settings, um, unless you're working with a post ACL reconstructive, um, you know, athlete, um, maybe you can go like eight seconds or ten seconds, but you know, six seconds uh, or even four seconds for that matter. Most people think it's not a very long period of time, and they you are wrong. It is a very long period of time, especially when even when you're under moderate load. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you uh, obviously you made your significant conclusions in your study. But what uh what physiological factors do you attribute uh you know the two to four second being superior to the six uh what do you attribute that gain to? It's really just a, especially with the two it's it's really just specificity um and, and and same thing with the four there's certain people that can train um you know with four seconds and and you can do it off season you can do it in season I would always um, limit um, eccentric training to in season. Uh, one of the drawbacks to doing too much eccentric training is you just get a lot more muscle damage uh, and, and more you know muscle soreness, acute and or you know DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness. And of course, in season, I mean, you're not trying to get sore; you're trying to maximize concentric speed and power, and, you know, or speed of agility. 
Um, so, but yeah, really with the two and four second, it just really comes down to specificity. Um, and so that, that's really the main thing that you get out of that from, from those two, um, eccentric durations. Now, now what do you think about, uh, utilizing eccentrics really in the ultimate goal to increase the overall time under tension of a set? Yeah, it's really effective actually. That's a good question. I mean, using eccentrics to increase overall time under tension. So if you look at the three main mechanisms that facilitate muscle hypertrophy, you're talking about mechanical tension or time under tension, metabolic stress and muscle damage. And I, I believe just from the science and, and from experience that eccentrics can be put into mechanical tension and muscle damage. Yes. Um, you, you might be able to throw it into metabolic stress, but really it comes down to mechanical tension slash time under tension and, and muscle damage. But um, it's very, very effective. And, um, you know, to, to really, to really say the least. And, but there's a come, there comes a point to where uh, what, what I've already talked about at, at what's the threshold in terms of duration that you can maximize benefits to where the, the performance, um, transferability starts to go down. And from the science that I've done, there's really not a whole lot of benefit to going beyond six seconds in terms of like athletic performance, um, there's, it's a different situation when you're dealing with perhaps clinical individuals, um, or even the elderly population, because as you get older, you know, you lose strength, you lose type two muscle fibers. Um, and so eccentrics or perhaps a longer duration would, would possibly be a little bit more beneficial. Um, but you also have to think, I mean, most athletic endeavors and most sports, they're not doing things that last six seconds in yeah. terms of the lifting and performance. So it just goes back to the specificity. Now, I asked you this uh, when we were together in San Francisco, but I wanted to hear it again, especially for our audience to hear it too. Now, just from a coaching's perspective, not from a researcher's perspective, but when you were going through your trials with your subjects, uh, what kind of enhancements in motor control, what kind of enhancements in muscular size and just coordination did you see from your coaching eye? From them doing the eccentric stuff? Yes, um, well, with all of the subjects and, and it's different for, and, and I, I feel like I, I can, I can come from two different, um, you know, um, perspectives, you know, one coaching perspective and the other one from a science perspective. Um, and it's a little bit different when you have to deal with like general population and those in the research setting, but everybody would do the same warm up. For example, every time they came in, they would always do warm up sets. Um, and one of the things that, um, you can find, and I, and I found, you know, some people I had to just constantly coach them on technique, uh, constantly just coach them on, you know, sitting back more, um, giving, giving them verbal cues and encouragement, um, throughout, you know, the sets, of course, depending on what group they were in. I mean, if you're in the two second group, it's, you know, it's just like a normal squat. No one had any problems with it. And, but in the four and six second, um, they, 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 they didn't really get better over time because they were all previously trained. Right. So I use, I use trained subjects. I don't really like using untrained subjects really for anything. And most people understand this because they can essentially like, you know, walk around the fucking block and do some pushups and they'll get big. <laughs> uh, so, um, that's why I like having trained subjects, um, just so you can eliminate, um, any type of learning curve or learning effect. Um, but I mean, even just a short period of time, everybody got stronger, um, with, with their eccentric duration. Um, and of course everything was really standardized. And, and so it was, it was, it, I was really happy with the overall results, 
um, of, of the study. But um, there's definitely some things that, that happen um, neuromuscularly with eccentric activity. I mean, aside from, you know, one of the, like I said, one of the downsides is just more muscle damage. And, um, excuse me, but one of the things that happens, like, neuromuscularly, I mean, you get increases in, like, like cortical activity, um, like neuromuscular efficiency, you know, active potential type of generation. But one of the things about eccentrics that most people um, often um, don't discuss is you're a lot stronger eccentrically than you ever are concentrically. And you're usually about 20 to 60% stronger eccentrically versus concentrically. So it means that you can lift a hell of a lot more weight okay, on any given type of movement depending on um, you know, the angles, joint angles, and things of that nature. Um, so, and since it's heavier loading then you can use, it has like a reversal of the size principles. You can actually incorporate and recruit fast twitch muscle fibers first, um, versus, you know, slow twitch or type one fibers, um, which is mainly based on the, on a, on a continuum type of, um, scale. But, uh, yeah, those are some of the, the, the brief benefits and that I've seen and experienced, you know, working with, um, you know, our studies and our, stu and our subjects. Yeah, especially with uh, the squat and the hinge patterns, I've seen like in a decade of training people that it's really hard to cheat uh, accentuated eccentric. Like yeah. if you have to go down slowly into an eccentric in the squat or the hinge, it's very, very difficult to do it with pure shit form. Mm -hmm. And it almost self-corrects uh, to an extent. Obviously, there's going to be outliers to what I'm saying now. But it's one of the best things. Uh, if you think about it simply, it's just allowing more time for the neuromuscular stabilizers to get in position, the joints to centrate, and your brain just to have a little bit more reactability down to the contractile muscles. So, you know, it's something that I love using with novices, especially when we're trying to build up the foundational movement patterns so we can progress them. But it's also something if people get stale, even advanced athletes that you can throw in and you can really figure out some key sticking points in some of the bigger movements. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it's, it's also a good, you know, that's one of the things uh, in terms of like movement patterns. You know, I'm a big fan of, you know, the conjugate, um, you know, training system and I, and I do that myself. And one of the things that I like to teach people in terms of uh, learning how to squat is learning how to do like a box squat. I mean, I mean, for Christ's sake, if I see, if I see one more person like box squat wrong like i'm just gonna lose my shit i mean does anybody know <laughs> like how to fucking box squat and the thing is is that a lot of coaches that i that i've come across they don't they don't like it and they're not a big fan of box squatting but for some wild reason that i i never get a great explanation for this is nobody answers the question okay well why don't you like it and they're most most people's response is well i just don't like it well, that's not really good enough. You know, you need to say like why you don't really like it. But uh, but just from observation and just being around a lot of other coaches, most people don't like it. At least I feel because they don't know how to do it right. Um, you know, when you when you do things right, um, you know, you sit back on the box, um, really sit back with your hips. You know, it teaches you at least from the box squat. It teaches you what muscles to use to sit back. Um, it teaches you what muscles to use coming up out of the bottom. Um, it teaches good eccentric control and movement quality and technique, and those are things that need to be taught, um, you know, very early on, especially with like novice and intermediate trainees. Hundred percent. You know, and 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 um, and so um, th that's that's kind of what I would say to that. And also uh, another like very unique feature of eccentric training is 
Um, there's a low energy cost to eccentric work, um, meaning it doesn't take as much energy um, you know, to utilize eccentric contractions as it does concentric contractions, which is a very appealing strategy for those that want to uh, incorporate that and use that to, to gain additional strength and hypertrophy. And so meaning you can do more volume, um, you know, eccentrically than you can concentrically, but um, obviously with more volume and depending on the load that you're using, you risk a little bit more, you know, muscle damage. So, you know, when, when we talk about eccentric training, it's something that you need to incorporate, obviously. Um, and I've always, you know, said here recently, I guess within the last year, uh, one of the four most underutilized or the four most underutilized and undervalued training methods, and not in any particular order, is aerobic development, um, isometrics, deceleration, and eccentric training. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and most people just neglect those types of training methods, but they're also the types of training methods that um, are, are, have so much transfer and so much utilization in the weight room and on, on the field. And most people do eccentrics and isometrics more than they think they do. Um, and some people do it by default and some people do it on purpose. Um, and there's nothing wrong with those, but you need to understand, you know, which, which, um, you know, kind of method that you're doing and why, you know, you know, always ask yourself why you're doing something. And if you can't, answer the why or if someone's not explaining to you why it is that you're doing it, then they don't need to be telling you the how. It's so f easy to fall into a training pit though. It's like this is just the way it's done because this is what I've always done. And in all actuality, if you can't match your specific goals with the specific actions in the gym, in the kitchen, wherever it may be, then you're just leaving your results up to chance. Uh, but before we move on, I want to go back a step and get back into that box squat because, you know, we have somebody here on the Strength Talk podcast that goes and tours the country with the NSCA talking about the squat and the deadlift. So it would be a travesty if I didn't ask you about <laughs> this. So when you're teaching somebody, so say uh, somebody that's either dealing with a dis dysfunctional squat pattern or somebody that's going to be a novice, so say like a 15-year-old football player in for the first time in the weight room, you know, what's your progression, you know, taking aside the assessment, when they're ready to squat for the first time, what does your uh, progression look like to get them up where they're able to do it efficiently? Well, just like most people, I always try to give them some type of an assessment. I, I'm a, uh, I like FMS a lot. I'm a big fan of you know functional movement screens, and and it's and it's you know that, and that's a whole different topic and discussion. And it's it's a really good system. It's not perfect, but I think it's the best for what we have you know right now. So based off the FMS, um, and those that are not familiar with it, I mean, if you get you know the scoring is like a one, two, or three, and the and the, and the top score that you can get. You know, there's seven, um, you know, movement, um, you know, exercises and assessments, and they all have a, a score of either one, two, or three. And so the top score you can get is a 21. But most people need to understand the goal is not to get a 21. The goal is to have no asymmetries. Um, and of course, you know, when you, when you're working with people that have a previous injury, well, the number one factor for injury is really previous injury. Yeah. The other, the other two factors are faulty movement patterns and asymmetries. And so, you know, based on the assessment, um, you know, if you can't do a body weight squat um, with any given type of, you know, fluidity um, or efficiency, then sometimes I like to regress and just do like a TRX, you know, type of squat. Um, same thing with like a deadlift. I mean, if you can't touch your toes first, um, you know, with your feet together with no load, then 
you're not going to be able to do, do do you should never be doing a deadlift if you can't really touch your toes. And so that way you can just kind of um, I you know I've done several deadlift seminars uh, this year and and that's one of the questions that that gets asked is you know what are some progressions and regressions and um, you know, if you have to regress, and we're so used to talking about progressions and progressions, um, I like to talk about regressions as well because you know sometimes you have to. Most people teach the squat from top down, right? Um, but for some clients and athletes, you have to teach it from bottom up. So, and that could start with just basic primal movement um, movement patterns. Um, you know, rolling or crawling or like bear crawls, for example, um, you know, if, like TRX, you know, um, assistant body weight squat, for example. Um, and then just kind of go, you know, from there you can, um, you know, put light load on their back um, or, or whatever it may be. I mean, there, there's a there's a hundred different things to do. Um, but the point is you have to kind of um, be willing to think in terms of what's best for the client, for their needs, not what you want. Um, so. Um, I like the, um, you know, the TRX assisted, you know, squats, um, and then box squatting, I would definitely put that in terms of that, that, you know, for progression, some people just cannot get really low. And I know we have this idea in our heads, you know, for a lot of coaches, um, and trainers, well, everything has to be ass to grass, ass to grass, you know, when you <laughs> squat and, I actually talked about this because uh, I teach a biomechanic class as well, and one of our last lectures was squat biomechanics, and not from a technique perspective, but really just more from an anatomical perspective. I mean, um, the number one factor governing squat depth is really hip anatomy. You yes. know how how shallow, how shallow or deep your hip sockets are. Um, you know, um, femoral neck angle, for example, and all those types of things play a role in how deep that you can squat. Um, but I really like to teach a box squat, um, like I said, because it really teaches people, um, one, how to really sit back and engage their posterior chain, engage their glutes, um, you know, engage some core musculature, focusing more on the eccentric control and technique, and, and for them to understand, like, how to actually, it's like the mind-muscle connection. Um, and, and sometimes it's really good to talk about that because a lot of people usually think of everything's got to be like load and load and heavier and heavier weight. And sometimes it's really a good idea, not only just from a joint perspective, but just from like a mind muscle connection to just lower the weight and actually really feel the contraction itself. And, it, and it's really hard to describe. And it's something that you actually just have to experience because it is a feeling. Um, and so that I can, you can carry that over to, to box squatting, um, having them sit back, um, eccentric control, having them um, utilize what muscles to use to sit back, teaches them what muscles to use to come up out of the bottom of a squat. Um, and, then, and then you can use a box squat as a progression. You can use it as a main lift. You can use it as an you know, assistant lift, you know, depending on the overall goals and needs of, of your athlete or client. Hey guys, just for listening into today's episode of the Strength Doc Podcast with my guest, Dr. Jonathan Mike, I am giving you all a $30 discount code to my new 12-week functional hypertrophy training program. Head over to drjohnrussin.com forward slash FHT dash program. And when you go to check out, use the coupon code podcast for $30 off. This is by far the best program that I've ever written, but you know what's better than the program itself? the fact that you guys get instant email access to me and my staff. So when you're training through and you have questions, you can hit us up on email at any time and get set right back on track. And let's be honest, I want to work with as many Strength Doc podcast listeners as I possibly can because you guys are the best. 
Let's get back to this week's episode with Dr. Jonathan Mike. Yeah, man, I feel like everyone listening to the Strength Talk podcast right now, it's like, man, we've heard this before, but you know, every every guest that I bring on, uh, I know personally, and I think we all kind of speak the same language. But I think the big takeaways from what you said right there is, can you body weight squat effectively? If not, then don't squat and go bottom up and relearn the pattern. And then the yeah. same to be said for the deadlift. Can you touch your toes? No, you can't touch your toes. You're probably not going to be pulling with the straight bar today. Let's just uh, play that safe. But then there's also regressions that you can move back off. And our boy Nick T is going to be yeah. real pissed off because we're using the word regression. You know, we had him <laughs> on Strength Dog Podcast a couple months ago, and he's like, "Hey, why do you use the word regression?" And I was like, "Oh shit." <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I absolutely agree. Where there's there's this continuum, and people feel like they have to get locked in to one type of movement. So if they're going to squat, they're going to only squat with a straight bar on their back. You know, there's no uh, continuum of their movements. And yeah, really, and we so need some variety. We need some uh, novelty to training. Yeah, you, effects you do. And and I mean, yeah, you do. And I mean, Nick, Nick Tominello, he's a good he's a good friend of mine. And uh, we always see each other several times a year. And, you know, most people, again, it's just it has to do with just your mindset and the way that you think. And I don't want people to say, well, you're either squatting or you're not, or you're box squatting or you're not, because you can utilize several variations of single leg patterning. And a lot of them are variations of some type of squat, you know, split squat, you know, rear foot elevated split squat, front foot elevated, you know, split squat. Um, and, and most people may not see that those types of variations, even loaded or even unloaded have a really good transfer to bilateral, you know, squatting, um, you know, free squat and or box squat. So, uh, you know, most people, uh, I'm a really big fan of like single leg exercises. Um, you know, like I said, rear foot elevated split squats, front foot elevated, um, you know, deficits, um, those types of things. And they all have, they all have their place and they're all very effective. Um, but they also have very good transfer to regular free squatting. Um, and even, you know, box squatting because they're all some type of variation. Um, but I think, you know, single arm and single leg um, exercises both for, you know, uh, upper body and you know, lower body um, are, are very underutilized um, but also very effective. I agree too. And there's, there's room for everything. Uh, you don't have to go into the industry dogma and just sit in one uh, area in the fitness industry. There's room for everything if you do it intelligently. Now, let's switch gears a little bit here, and I want to hear about what you're excited for the future of the fitness industry, so <laughs> what you're looking forward to in the next five or ten years. What's next? You know, that's a really good question, and um, the last couple of conferences that I've been to, there's always been some type of roundtable uh, and, and, and what we think we can look forward to uh, in the future, um, and, and it's and, I'm really surprised by a lot of the answers because uh, that, that that's a good thing because everybody uh, can can has really good views and perspectives on what they feel is important uh, for the future. But I think one of the things that's going to be important for um, the future, and, and we've already really seen this now, um, is just that more the advent of technology. Um, you know, whether it's more different types of Fitbits, um, you know, heart rate monitors, heart rate variability. I mean, those types of things have been, you know, been used already and they're just becoming more popular. Um, online coaching is something that has gained considerable popularity just in the last couple of years alone. 
Um, and it's going to continue that way. And, 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 you know, you have to like adapt, um, you know, during certain times and, and know what's going to come in the future. And I think one of the ways to really, um, have a vision and, and just have a perspective on what may be coming in the future is, is you just have to be doing this for a long period of time, working yeah. with different types of clients, being in just in different environments, um, you know, you don't have to work in the healthcare, you know, setting to understand what may be coming there because in some form or fashion, it's, it's all integrated, it's all connected. But in terms of the fitness, um, industry and in our industry, definitely more online coaching is coming, um, increases in advancements in, uh, technology, um, moving and gearing, uh, towards more towards uh, the business side, you know, mastermind, um, types of seminars, um, classes or, you know, or like retreats, for example, um, a mindset is, is becoming more and more popular and, and, you know, that's, that's not necessarily my area, but to me, um, just because I have a lot of passion and I'm more of a, you know, a type A personality and, and, and maybe this is just, you know, part of my personality because it's just been kind of been cultivated over a period of years. It's, it's one of those things where the mindset, it's, it's either you have it or you really don't. You can develop it, um, over time, but it, Developing a certain mindset um, is not, to me, is not going to be the exact same thing as you know, just just do it and not um, creating a lot of excuses of why you can or cannot do something. I don't like to use the word "can't," um, and I don't like to speak in absolutes either. It's just so many things are just relative. Right, right, and. I think that you're on point there with the future of the fitness industry because when we were presenting, I think you and I were the only ones actually doing like X's and O's of training and rehab. Everyone else was talking about more mindset motivation and all of that stuff. And I think there were what, 12 or 15 presenters at that conference? Yeah, yeah. I mean that's interesting but you know something that you touched upon that interests me is you know the online coaching because – I've seen so many people go into online coaching and even world-class, you know, record-holding power lifters using online coaches now, world yep. record bodybuilders, you know, people stage ready and then down to novice people. I'm, I'm taking uh, online physical therapy clients that are very low level all the way up into advanced athletes. Uh, do you think that, you know, the technology is getting so good now that, you know, really you can get a lot out of the online training? Uh, you can, and you know, online training is like I said, it's popular. Um, I, I've started to do that more and more. Um, obviously, I, mean, I don't have you know hundreds upon hundreds of clients just because you know I have another you know two three other you know full time jobs essentially. You know, when when you're when you when you teach, I mean, I, I you know my number one job is you know teaching classes as a professor, and you know also you know do a lot of other other article writing, other online you know fitness and consumer bodybuilding types of magazines. Um, I go and speak, um, and you know I, I work with some online clients now. Um, but I think it's 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 gotten more uh, popular and it's very effective. But at the same time, um, it's gotten to the point, and I, and I think it'll get worse before it gets better. And it's one of those types of weeding out types of processes. Um, I, I've I've been around a lot of people that they're they're eighteen, nineteen, or twenty, twenty one years old. They barely have three fucking <laughs> years of experience. Under the bar, they don't. They don't really don't even know how to actually train themselves, or even what good quality technique really should look like. And you know, they're on. They're they're promoting themselves on social media, and they don't 
have either an undergraduate degree in the exercise sciences or physical therapy, and and they're promoting their their services online as you know trainers or I'll do your meal plans for you and workout routines. You know, email me at you know you know johnsmith.com and in all these other things, and it, it's just. You know, that may last for a given period of time, but I've always kind of said to people, you know, do you want to be in this industry for two or three years or four years or do you want to be in it for 25 to 30 years? Because it's a a ginormous, you know, difference. Um, And like I said, I mean, you have to kind of adapt to the times and, and adapt and really mold and change your training and your philosophy over time as well. But um, I always get a little, you know, irritated at, at when I see younger guys, you know, promoting their services online when they really have no business of doing so. I mean, I didn't write my first article till after like ten years. Yeah. You know, I mean, really, it was ten years before I wrote my first article, and I've been going to conferences and and reading everything I could get my hands on. Um, and, and now it just seems like people can develop a website. You know, over a weekend, you know, take a couple of certifications and, you know, call themselves trainers. And um, I remember I walked into a nutrition store when I first moved here and uh, the guy says, you know, hey, how's it going? Uh, we're all like certified, you know, sports nutritionist or, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever the fuck it was. And I mean, a really nice guy. I mean, at least I got a nice, you know, 2X free T-shirt out of it. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, and I didn't say anything about it. And I just, you know, listened to the guy and just wanted to see what he was going to say. And But it's just one of those things. I mean, it's just how many more titles um, and and, and kind of names do we need to to create um, just to establish any – um, you know, moderate to respectful amount of, of, of credibility. And, and the, the thing that I that I, I think is important to take away from this is when you start seeing names out there that just keep coming up all the time, you know, myself or yourself or, you know, Nick T and some of these other big NSEA guys or yeah. even, you know, fitness people that go around and speak and are really big online. When, when you see the same names over and over and over again, those are the people that you really need to go and, and, and listen to and, and hear speak or, or, or read their stuff. Um, and, and it's just – I think it's just so much more difficult nowadays for people to get into the industry and do very well when it's just so overly saturated with so many things. And you, and you can't know everything about everything. And, and it's and one of the things, going back to your original question of where do I see the industry going, is continued on the track of specialization. Yeah. Um, and, and most people are known for certain things. Um, and even though they do other work, they're just known for certain specific things. And um, so like I said, I mean, those are those are some of the things that I, that I see happening or continuing uh, in the future. Dude, you just riled me the fuck up now because I can't stand when the 21-year-old dweeb with not even an exercise science degree with a CPT from an online printed out forum – gets on and claims that he's an online trainer doing people's nutrition illegally, by the way, and just claim to be something that they're not. Uh, You said it took you 10 years to write your first article. It took me eight years to write my first article. And it took me years of clinical practice, uh, training at a high level, you know, training many, many, many people and finally being able to do it. I've only been, you know, out online for two years now, but 
there's just so much shit out there. There just is. And it's hard to uh, really differentiate yourself early on from other people with so much shit. But like you said, if you see a guy doing it again and again and again and again, every week there's something good happening. They're training people in person. They're training people themselves. They're educating people out all around the world. Those are the kind of guys that you want to listen to. You know, mm -hmm. anyone could write one staggering article online that gets a lot of hits, but it's very, very hard to keep on uh, pumping those out. You know, that just doesn't happen. Good content, good ideas, and good education will always rise to the top. And those are the kind of guys that do it for a long time and they do it consistently. You know, not to mm -hmm. drop Nick Tuminello's name again, but he said consistency is the key. You know, you tell one funny joke, that's a funny fucking joke. If you keep on telling funny jokes every day for the next two years, all of a sudden you're the funny guy. So, right. you know, really that's a big thing in our industry is you see the guys that have been doing it for a long time. And those are the guys you want to gravitate towards. I get I get this question a lot when we run our seminars. It's like, oh, who do you learn from? And my answer is always I have two to three people that I study and I do it on a daily basis until I've literally read, listened, and watched every single possible thing that they've done online and all their products and everything else. And only until I get to the bottom of those people I evaluated against what I think as a coach and as a practitioner, and I tried to take strategic things and implement it into my methodology, and then I move on. That might take a year or two years with a couple people. So yeah, exactly. Uh, man, when everyone, you know, it's so easy to jump online, Google something, and then be going down the rabbit hole for fucking twelve weeks on the same question, and it's like you just need to find. Your guy that you know is highly credible has been doing it for a long time and get your answers and learn as much as you can from that. Yeah. And then, you know, one of the things that I, I one of the kind of the statements that I've made and I'll, I'll post it every once in a while on, on social media, on my Twitter or, or Instagram is, you know, I, I am a science guy um, and, and I love to train. I mean, I've been training for 16 years. Uh, I've never taken more than two weeks off ever without doing something, um, you know, whether it's just, you know, very light work or dumbbell work or whatever it may be or, you know, po pre or post contest. But, you know, I'm a science guy, but, you know, sci science is great and, you know, I love it and it's, and it's definitely needed for, you know, research and training and application um, and, and it's always ongoing. It, it, it just, it's a process that never ends. But at the same time, you know, you need to know where um, science ends and the weights begin. Um, I think science is a good way to place you in a position to evaluate yourself or your clients because right. it could place you to asking good questions and try to get feedback in a controlled manner that has a little bit of efficacy behind it. But in all actuality, every time you work with a client or a patient or you're working on yourself, it's really a subject of N equals one. You know, it's always about you because something that said in a research study could definitely be debunked for you. You could be that outlier of that research study. And it's just dependent. That's why we have jobs. That's why we're coaches. That's why we continue to educate because really uh, without knowing, without evaluating on the fly with your clients, um, you know, it'd be too easy. You could just go and read any research article, uh, read any article on T Nation or Elite FTS and you'd be good to go and we'd be out of jobs. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's like I remember um, ten years ago, or even even in the early two thousands, if you wrote an article for Elite FTS, I mean, you were the shit. I mean, <laughs> you, you really were, um, or even Teen Nation. And now it's just you you have to find your place, and and how you find your place is, you know, continue to have good content and be consistent. Um, and, and you have to, you know, from a business perspective, I mean, you have to have some type of value. You have to bring value to your business, to your clients, to the workplace, to speaking or whatever it may be. You have to have value. Um, and, and there's a lot of information that is, is you know, uh, overlapped or repeated, but somebody may present it in a way that is just different from anybody else. Um, and you can take those little bits and pieces and apply that you know, to, to your own training. Um, you know, so you know, I've done like, I've done several deadlift seminars. I've always gotten, you know, uh, really good feedback on them. Um, and then I always, you know, when someone else talks about like a deadlift, it's kind of like, you know, you're kind of comparing what you've discussed to, you know, with what that person has to say, but exactly. you know, and, and that's, that's, that's okay. And that's not a bad thing, but you know, are you looking to improve? Are you looking to get better? Um, because if, if, if you're not looking to improve, you're not looking to get better, um, then you might as well just stop now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to leave it at that, man. So let the audience know uh, where they can find you, your website, your social media, your contact pages. Uh, you can find me. I'm on uh, Facebook. It just uh, just type in my name, Jonathan Mike. Um, you can reach me at Twitter. I'm at jmike125. I'm on Twitter, and then I'm also at jmike125 on Instagram. Um, I usually post all my you know lifting videos to Instagram, um, and I'm also um, on email as well. I'm at um, jmike at linenwood.edu, um, and my website is um, www.thestrengthexchange.com. Um, and I look forward to uh, hearing from um, various listeners of the show. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. And if you guys haven't checked out Jonathan's Instagram page, it is pretty awesome. It's him just crushing set after set with some impressive tools. Uh, I actually just texted you yesterday. I was like, damn, what gym is that you're working out at? That looks sick. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. So guys, get over there and definitely follow him on Instagram because there's always some really gnarly stuff going on over there. But thanks for being on the show, Jonathan. I will catch up with you later. We have to have you on again. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Great episode today with Dr. Jonathan Mike. Thanks, John, for coming on the show today. And guys, don't forget about my offer, the $30 discount on my 12-week functional hypertrophy training program. Head over to drjohnrussell.com forward slash FHT dash program and use the promo code podcast upon checkout. Until next time, guys, I'm Dr. John Russell.